you are listening to the On Humans podcast, this is your host, Ilari Mekele. Today's episode launches a series of conversations about the science and philosophy of what it means to be human. The topic of today is the origins and the brain science of morality. Now, when asking about the origins of morality, we can go to many directions, but the direction we are exploring today is a very foundational one, which is why do we ever care? Why do we have unselfish concerns ever? Or do we? To discuss this topic, I am joined by Patricia Churchland. Churchland is an emerita professor of philosophy at UC San Diego, well known for her pioneering efforts to get philosophers to take neuroscience more seriously. In the context of morality, Churchland focuses on a perhaps surprising theme, which is food. Her basic idea here is that morality, well, we don't know exactly why it evolves and it's a complicated story, but it probably has something to do with a requirement to have constant calories. The basic idea here being that creatures who need constant calories are creatures that need to learn. They cannot rely on a simple genetically programmed way to find food, nor can they sit on a rock and wait for food to arrive, maybe today, maybe tomorrow. They need to learn, and in order to learn, they cannot survive as solitary creatures. Beyond this topic, we discuss the neurobiology of care, of caring for others. We dwell on the question of whether everything we do might fundamentally be selfish. Finally, we also ask whether we have learned too much by studying the brain, whether this shows that there is no free will and therefore no moral responsibility. If you want to check any names or terms that we mention, there is a full list in the show notes. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. This is On Humans with Patricia Churchland. Professor Patricia Churchland, welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. In your book, Conscience, the Origins of Moral Intuition, You're attempting to shed light into the intersection between brain science and ethics. Now, you're certainly not alone in this endeavor, but what I really appreciated your take on it was that this wasn't a book about how the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex does this kind of a judgment and uh, the, the anterior cingulate cortex that it was much more about the big picture, about how is it that in a Darwinian world, there is a corner of the animal kingdom where anything vaguely resembling morality might have taken place. Uh, you call this platform for morality. And you draw this fascinating link between morality and warm-bloodedness. Oh, uh, yes. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, we do know, of course, that there are many species of social animals that are cold-blooded, but their social behavior is fairly limited in the sense that they don't have a lot of flexibility. They don't have a lot of complexity in their social behavior. And this can be true of, for example, social fish. But one of the things that's very interesting about all mammals and birds is that their social behavior can be really quite complex, even if they don't live in groups. Uh, parental behavior with respect to the offspring, especially the mother with respect to the offspring, can be very complex, adapts to many, many different kinds of circumstances and so forth. So there is that big difference. And, and so a question really arises. So, so why are mammals and birds social in these really very complex ways? What's the complexity? You know, how did that evolve? And the hypothesis that, that I favor is that it has something to do with the emergence of endothermy. Now, we know that some dinosaurs roughly 250 million years ago had the capacity to be warm-blooded, but we really see the emergence of uh, endothermy in these very small animals. Uh, they were sort of early mammals, if you like. So what then is the link between endothermy and social behavior? And To a first approximation, it looks like this. 
that endothermy gives you tremendous advantages. You can forage at night when all of the cold-blooded critters are lying around waiting for the sun to come up. And you can also live and, and find food in colder climates and colder places. You get this advantage with endothermy, being able to forage in places that the other guys can't. But there is a downside. I mean, that is to say there is a cost. So what's the cost? And here the answer is really very clear, and that is gram for gram, a warm-blooded creature has to eat 10 times as much as a cold-blooded creature. So you can leave your lizard at home for a week and go off on vacation. You cannot leave your cat at home and go on vacation for a week. So that constraint puts quite a lot of pressure on the development of the brain. And what we presume is that there were a number of modifications that were made to the brain to deal with this cost. And the simplest way of uh, putting it is that we got smart. <laughs> that is, we got flexible in our responses to complicated situations. And what that meant really in terms of brain structure is that we see this, um, the emergence of this remarkable brain structure that no cold-blooded animal has, and that is cortex. Now, the intervening stages between having what they call dorsal cortex in a turtle, which is kind of a maybe two-layer thing if you, you know, are generous, and this highly structured six-layer thing with very specific cells with very specific connections each place. Um, we don't know the intervening stages, but clearly there was tremendous advantage in having this big six-layer thing. Actually, in my lifetime, it was discovered that birds, although when you dissect their brains, it doesn't look like they have a cortex until you follow the circuitry. And then by God, although it isn't this quite, you know, highly organized six-layer thing we see in every single mammalian species, it's there. So birds developed, but, you know, in a different evolutionary pathway, a different evolutionary lineage, the same capacity to be smart, to be flexible, to learn, to learn complicated skills, to have a tremendously powerful spatial knowledge via cortex and hippocampus. So how do we get from the, from from warm-bloodedness to cortex to <laughs> to caring? And the answer I think is this that it turns out that the best strategy given the nature of cortex it, the best strategy is for parents to take care or at least mothers to take care of of their babies. So let me put it this way. What we know about cortex is that it, it has to be very, very immature when the infant is born. Why is that? It's because learning about the world, learning new skills, learning how to figure things out involves building brain structure. The cortex really gets built. It's something like two billion synapses per second are built in the infant brain. So, okay, well, that's terrific. If you're going to have cortex, you have to be born immature. But if you have to be born immature, then you're not like a turkey that can come out of its egg and take off. You need to have somebody there to care for you. It's quite clear that those mothers who had the circuitry to when the infant was born to take care of the infant were selected for. And the other ones, these immature babies, well, they didn't have a mom, they died. They were somebody else's dinner. So the caring circuitry is very, very basic and very fundamental. So it has to do with being warm-blooded, 
having a cortex, the fact that we know from neuroscience that infant cortex is extremely immature and there has to be caring by somebody. And the mother is usually the one that's there because she's the one who gives birth. So that's the fundamental platform for caring in all of its complexity that we see in mammals and, of course, in birth. And there is an additional step that involves using many of the same mechanisms and circuitry to expand the domain of caring beyond the infants. So would it be right to say that warm-bloodedness requires flexible learners with big brains, having flexible learners with big brains requires them to be born in a very vulnerable state and being born in a very vulnerable state evolutionarily requires you to have someone to care for you. Yes. Yes. A beautiful summary. I wish I'd said it that, that succinctly. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, um, I like the point on many fronts, but one of them is I mean, you, you give a beautiful description of the experience of, of conscience. Uh, in, the, in the beginning of the book, you're telling a story of witnessing a, uh, an indigenous Canadian man who is being detained by the police, perhaps good reasons, but certainly a small chapter in a, in a, in a long story of brutal exploitation of this man's people. And you write, quote, I feel that recognizable tightening in my gut. I ought to do something, but there is nothing to be done. And here comes my favorite part, quote, were I a solitary creature like a salamander, none of this would trouble me. I would have no moral conflicts, no social conscience. I would feed and mate and lay my eggs. I would not fret about other salamanders, not even those hatching from my very own eggs. So it is. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and why I think this is very important is if people just quickly have a peek at what kind of things are discussed typically in the evolution of morality, literature, um, kin selection, so taking care of people yes. who, with whom you share your genes is, 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 is almost always there, but it's there in a very cheap way. It's almost like, well, obviously any Darwinian creature would take care of those with whom and it's the creature not. shares their genes, but they do not. Yes, yes, no. yes. Most of them do not. <laughs> most of them do not. Yeah. No, they don't need to. When talking about the platform for morality, it does set humans, for example, apart from salamanders, as you, as you, as you write, but it does not set humans apart from the rest of the animal kingdom, as you just hinted at. When I teach philosophy and psychology, there's always at least one student who is the, the, the psychological egoist on, in the room, maintaining that it is rather obvious that at least no other animal or perhaps no animal, even humans, would ever do anything truly unselfish. I would be interested in hearing your take on this attitude. Perhaps if you want, you can go into where do you think this attitude comes from. But especially, I would love to hear your favorite experimental evidence countering the kind of assumption that all animals, except perhaps humans, are purely driven by selfish concerns. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I was profoundly affected, I think, by the work by anthropologists. Anthropologists have, have studied primates and other mammals in the wild and have very compelling accounts of non-selfish behavior. So let me give you one example. So Chris Bash is, I believe, a, a German anthropologist who has studied chimpanzees in the wild and in many places in Africa. And he has five distinct cases. So this is now, you know, sort of documented data. Five distinct cases of male chimpanzees, male chimpanzees, who adopted an infant that had been orphaned because its mother died or was killed. Now, the egoist would say, yeah, yeah, but I bet those were the real dads. So Chris Bash, expecting this response, took the urine samples from all of these males and from the babies, did the genetic analysis and discovered, lo and behold, they were in none of the cases, the dads. They were unrelated. And so 
So it's now a little harder for the psychological egoist to say that this is not genuine altruism. And you might say, well, you know, it's fun taking care of babies. Oh, yeah, you think so? <laughs> really? Um, and it, it's perhaps not as hard f uh, for a male chimpanzee as a human dad, but the babies have to ride along with them and did, you know, they would carry them on their backs, which restricts their movements in lots of ways, uses energy, means they have to eat more. The males also taught them things that they would need, that any mum would talk, teach the, the offspring how to crack nuts using rocks, how to sneak up on things, and so forth. So, so yeah, you might say, oh, well, they did it just because it's fun. But now, you know, now it looks like you're just trying to save the hypothesis that you're not actually paying attention to the data. Hmm. So I think that particular case is is very very striking but of course there are hundreds of other examples there's many examples of food sharing examples of reconciliation after a squabble or intervention to prevent a squabble from getting dangerous there are wonderful examples of of uh, consolation. I mean, you can see this in wolves and dogs. You don't have to go to chimpanzees. Yeah, I think the the adoption examples, I wasn't aware of them. It's fascinating. And it is a really good example also in a sense that it is a very, very high cost behavior. Very high cost. This is not a, a one minute of being a do-gooder. And, and the... yeah, I mean, you have to ask a psychological egoist, would you adopt a baby if the baby needed a caregiver, would you do it? And humans, of course, do do it, just as chimpanzees do. But it will give them a sense of what the cost is. It's non-trivial. What about rats in the laboratory? There's also some fascinating work that I learned from you about rat sharing behavior in some laboratory experiments. Oh, yes, yes. This was a wonderful experiment. So the experiment involves two rats, and it involves a plexiglass cage in the form of a tube that can be opened at one end with, with manipulation that takes a while to figure out. So the two rats know each other, and they're in their colored cage, and they're happily being rats. And the experimenter takes one rat, stuffs it in the plexiglass tube, and puts it in the middle of a large sort of arena space. And the rat does not like being in the tube. And he's just saying, yeah, 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 let me out, let me out. And the second rat is allowed into the arena. Now we know from rat behavior in general that rats do not like to go from the edge where they feel safe into the middle of the room or into the middle of the space. They hmm. prefer to stay at the edge. So the second rat comes in and he kind of stays at the edge and stays at the edge. And then finally, he goes to the middle of the space where the, the trap rat is. And he works and he works and he works and he works to open the, the tube to let his friend out. Now, notice the psychological egoist has a bit of a problem here because that takes overcoming a fear of an open space. It also involves helping at no obvious benefit to yourself. Anyway, eventually the rat comes out or is released. And then they, they, they sort of socialize and hug and, and so forth. And so then this was done in Peggy Mason's lab in Chicago. So then they said, well, what if we, after the trap rat is released, we have a feed station? So let's get the feed station in right at the beginning. Put it, the rat in the trap, let the other guy come in and see what happens. And the answer is very interesting. The, the, the free rat does not go straight to the feed station. He goes straight to help his pal, lets him out. And then the two of them go to the feed station. 
And again, you know, you might not be super impressed by that as an example of non-selfish behavior, but it's pretty darn clear that this is much more complex than an organism that is driven solely and motivated solely by its own interest. The final thing they did, which I found very interesting, was they stuffed into the tube a rat that was unknown to the free rat. And then everything changed. The free rat was not so keen. So when they then released the trapped rat and let the two get to know each other, that was that changed everything. Then you put the, the, the unfamiliar, before unfamiliar rat in the trap, the free rat immediately releases him and they share food. So this is sophisticated sharing social behavior. Now, obviously there's great variability within a species. Not all humans are equally compassionate or equally kind. Not all are, are equally strong-willed and so forth. So we see variability. That's the nature of biology. But if you want examples, go to the anthropological literature. And so help me, Peter, you'll find ones that will blow your mind. Maybe we should dig a little bit into the nitty gritty side of the neuroscience of all of this. You say that there are four microplayers in, in this story. These microplayers being oxytocin and vasopressin, as well as opioids and can cannabinoids. This is going to be technical stuff, so <laughs> let's go into the weeds a little bit uh, without boring all of the audience away. Uh, but could you, could you just give a kind of rapid overview of what, what are these uh, chemicals doing? Uh, in what sense do they relate and what do we learn from knowing something about them and not just talking on the kind of psychological level? Yeah, no, it's a really good question because oxytocin... And let's just stick with oxytocin for a moment and put vasopressin aside. But oxytocin is a very, very ancient molecule. It's an amino acid. It's been around for a long time. It does all kinds of jobs. Even in cold-blooded animals, it does all kinds of jobs. But one of the things that we've learned about the evolution of nervous systems is that particular neurochemicals or particular chemicals can be put to new uses. And you can't always predict what, you know, that new use would be. But in the case of mammals and birds, the new use of oxytocin was to influence the circuitry in such a way that it resulted in attachment of mother to offspring and offspring to mother. So how did that work? And the answer is that the main thing that it does is that it goes to a, a region called the nucleus accumbens, still part of the ancient brain. This is not yet cortex. It goes to the nucleus accumbens and the nucleus accumbens has this very cool thing. And that is it has endocannabinoids and endogenous opioids. Yes, just as they sound, they make us feel good. They don't make us high because we don't get them in the concentrations that you might if you were, you know, intending to get high and shoot up. But they make you feel good. And one of the ways they make you feel good is they interact with another neurochemical, namely a stress hormone, cortisol. So when you feel good and when oxytocin abounds, cortisol falls. Oh, now things are not just feeling good because the opioids are there. They're feeling good because you don't have stress hormones mucking everything up. So this is rewarding, to put it in its simplest way. So that when the mother gives birth and begins to lick the baby, her oxytocin levels go high. Her endocannabinoids, her endogenous opioids go high. She is now so attached to this baby. 
And the, in the baby, as baby is cuddled and nursed and so forth, opioids and cannabinoids are released. Oxytocin is released. The baby feels good. But it is important to see that, and I think it was Sue Carter, who is a neuroendocrinologist, who, who figured this out, that oxytocin to a first approximation has this antagonistic effect on stress hormones, your stress hormones fall. So it turns out that when you also track the pathways of oxytocin, not just to the nucleus accumbens, but also to cortex, there are receptors for oxytocin all over, all over the mammalian cortex. Would it be correct to summarize the role of oxytocin roughly as well? It's complicated and we don't know exactly, but it has to do with care. It has, it has the stressor effect yes. on us. It's our brain in a way that is related to both wanting to do this caring and liking this caring. And liking it. That's right. And that facilitates long-term bonding, long-term attachment. And I guess this is in a way just for one last time to cycle back to the psychological egoism point. I think this is where the psychological egoists get their hopes up again. I'm saying, oh, well, there you told me, you know, it, it is nice, isn't it? After all. Um, but I guess there is a meaningful difference we want to make between two kinds of animals, those animals who want to help others and perhaps even like helping others and those kind of animals that do not and uh, perhaps unselfish and selfish are words that are useful in in making that distinction and yeah, if not, I mean, you need some better words but but yeah. but it's it's such a distinction to make and that's really what we care about well, i think so i think so and i think the the rat experiment for peggy mason's lab that i described where the unknown rat was put in the tube trap and the, the the knowledgeable rat didn't didn't help and that's very interesting uh didn't help maybe because you know who knows this guy might be mean when he gets out of the tube who knows and so helping isn't sort of automatic or anything of that nature and and maybe that's really all that the psycho psychological egoist wants is to say that it isn't like a reflex, and and by gosh, mm. right? It's not like a mm. reflex. Mm. It's very complex in mammals mm. and in birds. Well, that's a wonderfully charitable uh, interpretation. I think. Yes, we can leave <laughs> it there then. Um, when you say attachment begets caring, and caring begets conscience, there is a part of me who who celebrates this as a, as an approach to moral philosophy, and especially to the evolution of morality. I have been frustrated with uh, the literature on evolution and morality whenever it wants to just focus on game theory, tit for tat, yeah. reciprocity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I really, really appreciate that you're bringing the caring aspect to it. But there is still the question, well, is it going too far? I guess there would be critics who would say that what is still lacking from your book would be more emphasis on kind of maybe more, maybe not so much the caring, but more the cooperating part of potential evolutionary origins of morality here, we would be talking exactly about reciprocity, mutually beneficial interactions, mutualism, etc. What's your take? What would be your response to such a criticism? Well, in saying that this is sort of the platform for morality, that that's not saying it's the whole story. I mean, you know, sometimes it's obvious that giving an, another person the right of way or letting them do the thing that they seem intent on doing is it just makes good sense. I mean, I have to take a ferry in order to get to the cabin on the island. And and people have to cooperate as they come on and off ferry in all kinds of ways. And if you just kind of get in there and scoot ahead of everybody, they get pissed off. And, you know, they'll walk up and say to the person, no, that's not the way things work here. So there is certainly room, I think, for a much wider discussion about, about these issues. But I don't think there's, there's any question but that the oxytocin story has a really important part of uh, the, the nature of social behavior in humans. Well, if we uh, leave the platform for morality 
behind a little bit for now, the platform being the link between warm-bloodedness and attachment and attachment and care. Yeah. There's a couple of other ingredients that go into your story. One of them is learning, learning social norms. I think yeah. this is the one part where really nobody would uh, disagree with the yeah. judgment that sometimes people, sometimes probably often people learn social norms from the communities. Now, there is a third component in your story, which I, I, I thought was fascinating and really eye-opening in some ways. And this is uh, the idea that sometimes morality is about this caring instincts yes sometimes it's about learning norms yes but sometimes it's about problem solving mm, and, mm. and in particular problem solving in a way we, that we can understand as a constraint satisfaction mm -hmm. uh, a matter of constraint satisfaction could you talk about that a little bit well the kinds of social problems confronting uh, hunter-gatherers, our, our ancestors, for example, those kinds of social problems are probably quite different from the kinds of social problems that we encounter. On the other hand, it may be that various aspects of problem solving are fairly, you know, sort of standardly implemented across diverse situations. So I do find it very interesting that people can come together to deal with a very particular social problem and, and work out what it is that they, what they need to do. And I mean, on a small island like this, where there's really only 3,000 people, people pretty much know each other. And there are various problems about fresh water, for example and wells, whether wells have arsenic in them. And if they do, then how you handle that. And, and you know, to a first approximation, I guess you'd say that good sense tends to prevail. Now, this is partly because, of course, we all see that it's in our interest to have this problem solved. And people, they care that they are not being exploited by others. I think that's probably a universal, you know, significant feature of humans. Not universal because nothing is, I guess. Um, um, we don't like it when we're lied to, when people are dishonest. And that seems fairly standard across, across cultures. And so these things form part of the constraint body when a constraint satisfaction issue has to has to be resolved. I think there are anthropologists who would probably have more to say about that issue than 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 I would. Well then maybe we can make it very much about philosophy by turning to your criticisms of uh, Kantian and utilitarian schools of thought, and in particular, the way that you use the idea of constraint satisfaction in, in the criticism. In the, I think that was, for me, the most interesting part of the discussion. It's very easy to find books that take a broadly evolutionary approach to morality, and then mm -hmm. they drop David Hume and Adam Smith somewhere in discussion and, and thumbs up, and then they drop Kant and, and the utilitarians as thumbs down. And, uh, especially Kant would be thumbs down in this scenario. Um, and, and I guess in a sense, uh, somebody could say that your book just falls into that pattern. But I, I appreciated the criticism from this point of view. I think it was very illuminating. So could you explain what you meant by the idea that both Kantian and utilitarian ethics don't appreciate the kind of full range of constraints that we have to satisfy in our moral problem solving? Well, both of them seem to have this kind of predilection for absolute rules, whether it's the rule to maximize aggregate utility or the rule that you must always tell the truth. And one of the things that I do find very um, illuminating about Eastern approaches, for example, the Buddhists, Mencius, for example, Confucius, is is that there is a recognition that often these absolute rules, if followed, will give you a result which is far worse in terms of people's suffering and interests than if you sat down and figured out a better way that maybe didn't involve 
adherence to the rule, but still uh, abided by certain constraints, such as, you, you know, you're, you're taking other people's interest in, into account and you're treating them fairly and you're treating them with dignity and so forth. So I think the Eastern religions really kind of opened my mind about that. And I should tell you an embarrassing story about myself. So many years ago, long before I knew anything about oxytocin, actually, I was invited to go to meet the Dalai Lama in Los Angeles, along with three other neuroscientists. I naturally agreed to go, and it was an interesting conversation, but the embarrassing part happened at lunchtime. I was seated next to a monk, uh, and I thought, well, you know, I'm a well blood I'm a girl, I'm supposed to make conversation. So I said, so, you won't believe this, but anyway, I said, so tell me what in Buddhism corresponds to the Ten Commandments. And he sort of looked at me and to my great and everlasting relief, he did not laugh at me and say, lady, you know nothing. <laughs> but what he did, of course, was completely change how I thought about rules because he said, well, we don't exactly have rules. We have sort of general cases that usually hold, but they may not always. And so when there is a really serious moral dilemma, people get together and talk it through and figure out what to do. And sometimes not everybody is happy about it, but you have to move on and we do the best we can. And we do that without having strict adherence to rules. Anyway, I went home to San Diego and thought, you know, I learned much more from these guys than I think they learned from me. I have to say that I, I have very mixed responses. I, in a way, admire that kind of pragmatism that they embody. But I have to say that my own experience with Buddhism is, is not exactly in line. I would, I would, it would be interesting to hear what exactly did they mean in this discussion by saying that there are no rules, because the typical response from someone like me would be, well, whenever I go to, I, I, I go regularly to Buddhist meditation retreats, and it's very, very strict. Oh, I see. And not only is it very strict during the camp, it's very strict in the application process. If you want to continue in this particular school, you have to adhere to these and these principles, which are quite strict. It's, you, know, you don't kill mosquitoes because there is a rule not to kill. I it's quite, and this is in no way a criticism of the of the system or a celebration of the system. I I think for many Westerners, it's it just it strikes as difficult sometimes to maintain the, the strict yeah. strict moral precepts as they are called. But this idea of strict precepts is very much kind of part and parcel of my experience with Buddhism, even in its more secularized forms. So I, I think I know what they would mean. I, I guess I have two hypotheses. One hypothesis is that they are instrumental rules at the end of the day. And that so would be the guidance, guidance, but not required to be followed. Well, well, that, no, that's I think where I would take issue and say, well, in my experience, they are very much required to be oh, followed. Okay. However, oh, however, I guess the, the distinction there would be that these are instrumental rules, not uh, God-given moral precepts that are true as such. But so as an example, the kind of rules that would strike people as very surprising is that during the retreats, you're not allowed to eat after lunchtime. But if you really push the point, there's a very clear explanation for why this is good for the practice. And so it is, and in the same sense, the, the rule not to kill is also explained as it is very important for the practice, for your peace of mind, for the peace of mind of the others, for the karma, etc. So there is a certain kind of instrumentalism, I guess, which right. you wouldn't find in Ten Commandments. Oh, how interesting. But one thing where I think what might also explain this example is that Tibetan Buddhism, especially, for example, when it comes to the issue of vegetarianism, for very, very practical reasons, has always been more relaxed than, for example, the Theravada tradition, which I, which I am more familiar with, because in Tibet, one does not survive in a yes. traditional context yes. without, without eating meat. And this is a problem that Dal the Dalai Lama has talked about, of how it is the butchers who then get stigmatized, but the meat is still being consumed. But anyway, that's a, that, that's a caveat. But yes, so my reaction is, is, very, is, is a very mixed one to the story, and it would be wonderful to have these folks. Uh, you said it was one month in particular. Yes, yes, yes. It would be lovely to have a discussion about rules and the role of yes, rules. Yes, it would be. With them. It would be.
And he may have given me a very idealized conception of how he personally thought about it, as opposed to what the religion in general said. That would be my one of my hunches in a way, and therefore I would just want to say I wouldn't feel so embarrassed as you said. Okay, let's wait. <laughs> okay, I I get it. Yeah, um, but but returning to the to the territory that might be familiar, more familiar to the, those educated in in Western philosophy, at the point of utilitarianism and, and Kantian oh. ethics, am I correct in understanding your criticism in being? That example in the utilitarian context, overall happiness absolutely is a constraint on moral decision making. We should take that into account, but it would be wrong to say that it is the only constraint we have. Yes, I think so, especially because sometimes it means that you satisfy the majority by taking advantage of the minority. Yes, and there the Kantians would have their constraint brought up, which is yeah. the, the adherence to, I don't know how you would formulate their, the kind of constraint. That, yeah, not sure either. Well, not use any humans as a tool, as a means to an end, for example, yeah. that's also yeah, yeah. a constraint, but it is not the only constraint. Yeah. Moral decision. I think Simon Blackburn is very good on this, actually, on, on the difficulties with utilitarianism. I mean, we all agree, of course, that, that the consequences of a decision map it's just that to say that maximizing aggregate utility is this, you know, the be all and the end all, that gets you into trouble in, in a variety of kinds of circumstances where you want to back off. Well, let's talk a little bit about um, human morality then from your point of view. So we talked a little bit about uh, morality in a more broad biological context, and then we talked a little bit about moral philosophy. But just uh, looking at uh, humans, about our sociality, pro-sociality, morality, one of the nice little stories in your book that stuck with me was of how you went... Um, uh, I think it was some kind of a camp with undergraduate students. Oh, right. And one of the days was such that there was a lot of strenuous activity and it was quite tiring and people had to work difficult problems together. Yeah. I think it was rafts working or something like yeah, that. So yeah. you were worried that uh, this is going to be their least favorite day. And no, it was actually, it was, that was the time when the bonding really happened. It was really funny. I had misread it, but these were students who at the beginning of the trip did not know each other. And clearly they came to, to bond really closely, especially in the circumstance where they were required to cooperate in what was a very difficult maneuver. I mean, we were reasonably sure, we and the guides, that it was safe. But, it, but it, it easily could have happened that somebody tumbled over a cliff and into the rapids. But they did. They, they suddenly sort of came together as a group as a result of that. And what does that tell us about humans and human sociality, human morality? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, maybe I back at you. What do you think it tells us? Well, the way I read it, I guess, was the, another beautiful example of how we are creatures very much tuned to care and cooperation. Yeah. Yeah, it, it had to be rewarding in some deep sense. It had to have made them feel good and feel good that they had helped somebody through a situation which was potentially quite risky. And others had helped them through a, a, a risky situation. Yeah. So is this uh, the story of oxytocin getting into their brains, releasing the, the opioids and cannabinoids? Almost certainly. I mean, let me tell you another oxytocin story, which I did not write about in the in, uh, conscience, because it's very, it's, the paper came out, I think, last week. So this concerns the placebo effect. Now, the placebo effect has been studied for quite some time, and it's been realized that an important feature of the placebo effect is that you have the expectation that this dummy drug will cure your chronic back pain. And in a significant number of cases, if you have that expectation, then you actually do benefit. But here's the kicker. So then people began to notice that 
you get a much greater placebo effect. If the staff people giving you the drug, the dummy drug, and interacting with you are warm and gentle and kind and look you in the eye and so forth. And it was quite clear that there, this could also be an oxytocin story. So that when, when you have the warm, kindly interactions together with the expectation effect, the placebo effect goes way up. And so they did the various kinds of manipulations that they had subjects who had the expectation effects, and then they shot oxytocin up the nose. And some of which probably gets in past the blood brain barrier and into the brain. And if you got the oxytocin nasal delivery, again, you had a much more significant number of people who had the placebo effect. So, so we talked earlier about the importance of oxytocin lowering stress hormones and that in and of itself feeling good. But it's quite possible that in these interactions between physicians and patients, if the physician is kindly and warm and appears to like you and care about you, that it actually has an effect on your aches and pains and diseases and so forth. And I thought that was just a monumental result that I had no expectation I was seeing. I mean, I, I was completely taken off guard by that. That is fascinating. And I really do want to then ask you, what is the current consensus on nasal spray oxytocin? Yeah. Well, I wrote to actually to the, the author of the review paper and said, you know, this was Dan Bowling. So I said to Dan, you know, I've always worried a little bit about intranasal oxytocin because there's this issue of it getting across the blood-brain barrier. And he said, yeah, that issue has not really gone away. And we don't quite know why we are seeing effects of oxytocin when we do it intranasally, even though we have reason to think that it's not actually getting through in that pathway, but maybe there is a related pathway. So no, you're absolutely right to be, to be skeptical about that, but the data are still there. <laughs> so you do have to wonder. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I am very skeptical too about the blood brain barrier issue and oxytocin getting, getting past it. I guess there is a, a, a shadow over, over that topic in that it's been a whole research uh, paradigm almost of uh, nasally sprayed oxytocin and economic yeah. games. And not everything that comes out of those studies is necessarily very pretty, having to do with possible links between oxytocin and, and in-group favoritism in the worst case scenario, even xenophobia. And when I read that actually nasally sprayed oxytocin might not work, it was almost a relief. Ah, I can just discount all of these studies. I mean, <laughs> this is not even working. So in a way, now the problem is back on the table. What is your take on it? Is oxytocin linked to xenophobia? Don't know. I have no idea at all. And I think we need some really good experiments to try to help us get to the bottom of that. Ones that don't involve spraying oxytocin up the nose. In a vacuum, the theory makes sense. Okay, you know, the mama bear is the most dangerous bear to a stranger because it's sure. protecting its cubs. But then we talked about Buddhism earlier. I have never seen a direct study on this. There probably are, but various kinds of meditation practices that are based on spreading goodwill, metta meditation, for example, by its technical name. I'm, I'm pretty convinced that it somehow relates to oxytocin. And it certainly is not the meditation you're practicing to be xenophobic. It's the meditation that you're practicing in order to spread the kind of circle of compassion wider and wider. So I am, I'm always felt quite uncomfortable with those studies. I, I yeah. see the logic, but I'm not yeah. willing to just uh, declare oxytocin the seed of xenophobia just like that. No, I, I have been very skeptical about them also. And as I said, I was skeptical about the, the part of the placebo story that says they, they got a bigger effect when they put it up the nose, oxytocin up the nose. I think it's enough 
actually, that you get a bigger placebo effect when the staff are warm and kindly and make eye contact. That's enough for me. Whether or not you can get an additional effect by spraying it up the nose, about that I'm very skeptical. Okay, well, I guess we could talk a little bit about the broader implications of what we talked so far. So I guess there's two kinds of uh, counter-arguments. One, that we have uh, learned almost nothing because, yeah, it's interesting for many people to learn a little bit about the brain, etc. But we learned about the mechanism. We don't learn about anything else. And then the inverse would be to say that we've learned too much. And I want to focus first on this too much point. The argument here would be that it's all about the brain. Therefore, there is no free will and therefore there is no moral responsibility. And so we have done enough neuroscience of morality to learn that morality does not exist. What is your take on that? Oh my goodness gracious. Well, the issue of free will is not quite that simple. And we know that there are differences in the brain between somebody who is operating under a compulsion and somebody who is able to consider alternatives and, and make a decision. So I think it's a little early in the game to say that we know from neuroscience that there's no such thing as free will. I mean, we know there's no such thing as a decision without any causal antecedents, but causal antecedents are not by themselves the end of free will. Some causal antecedents precisely allow for making a very long-term, deliberative, careful decision. You know, we've got a lot to learn about the way decisions are, are made, including the way moral decisions are made. And at the moment, of course, it's very difficult to directly study that in, in human brains. But uh, some of that may change with the development of, of new tools and techniques. In the question of free will, would you basically take the classic compatibilist approach, which is to say that fair enough, um, our decisions have causes, but that doesn't mean that we couldn't decide. I mean, the neuroscience can tell us how yeah. we decide, but it's still a decision. Yeah. Therefore, we should hold people responsible for their decisions. Something along those lines. Yeah, I, I, th I think probably something like that. Until I'm, I'm shown, uh, you know, a, a reason for thinking about it very differently, I would say, yeah. Uh, and of course, when we hold people responsible, we're giving them negative feedback. Uh, the negative feedback becomes, if you like, constraint. It becomes a factor in your brain for deciding whether or not you're going to go ahead with a difficult decision. In a criminal justice system, not in the current criminal justice system, but in your utopian perfect criminal justice system that you can imagine, how differently would you treat the following four people? First one has a brain tumor that is linked to antisocial behavior. The second one has something that we might call psychopathy, which we have reasons to believe is linked to abnormal genetics. Third one has something that we again might call psychopathy, but it can be linked to adverse experience abuse in their childhood. And then the fourth one just seems to be a pretty healthy person who's very greedy and, uh, and wants to be antisocial for their own benefit. How differently would you treat these four cases in your perfect criminal justice system? I find, you know, the perfect criminal justice system really hard to, to evaluate. And I, I you know, it's like, some thought experiments in philosophy, which, which just kind of go off the rails. And, and, and I think this one does just kind of go off the rails. Obviously, you know, a person who has a brain tumor that affects his, his sociability, it kind of depends on what it did. I mean, let's suppose all of the, each of these four individuals took great delight in torturing for hours little children and then killing them. Well, we're not going to say about any of them, oh, well, heck, you know, you had a tough childhood or you've got bad genes, off you go, you can go home now. I mean, we're not ever going to say such a thing. Are we going to string them all up and hang them because they're, they've all done a bad thing? Well, no. I mean, even the criminal justice system as it currently stands takes those things into account. 
but you can't, if somebody through, through, let us suppose, genetic considerations ends up uh, doing terrible things, you can't just say, well, heck, you know, you didn't pick your gene, so go home. I don't really know what we're supposed to say about a, a situation like that. Could we change the genes and hence change the brain? Maybe someday. Could we remove the tumor and alter the person's behavior? Maybe. It depends on the tumor. It depends on the behavior. And certainly the parents of the children who were tortured were going to have to have something to say about this. And if you just take out the tumor and say, well, now go ahead and live your life, they're apt to take justice into their own hands. And you don't want that either. Mm -hmm. So so I don't think there is an easy answer. I mean, I recognize the difference between the description of the four instances. But at the end of the day, we want to know how to prevent this from happening again. And at the moment, our tools for achieving that are, are fairly crude. And then somebody says, yeah, but, you know, suppose you had tools where what you could do was put a brain cap on and you could then control their brain so it would never happen again. Like, well, holy crap. I mean, that's not something I, I, I can get my mind around because I don't know what you're talking about really. And that makes me, I mean, I know philosophers hate it when I say things like that. They say, well, you're just a flat-footed philosopher. You've got no imagination. Well, okay, fine. But that's the world I live in. It's a very practical, flat-footed world. That's the world I have to make decisions in. <laughs> yes, 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 I see. Uh, I guess the, the best way for me to appreciate the oomph of the question is that there is a famous case, for example, of, of a middle-aged man who developed predatorial tendencies with a brain tumor. And every time they get the tumor out, the behavior goes away, etc. And in that case, I think it's very easy, for example, for his family members to say that this is about a mechanical problem in the brain. This is not my dad who's really doing it. And then the question is, when we have someone for some not so obvious reason, behaves in a way we don't like. No, yeah. We tend to want to be able to attribute it to their character in a different way. And this is where some so-called critics of free will, although the, I don't think the terms really matter so much, would say that that is an unwarranted attitude. We should always take the attitude, the kind of compassionate attitude that we take towards this poor guy with a brain tumor, towards every single act of antisocial behavior, because they always have their reasons for it. That would be a case where I can I can see the point in a in a rather well fleshed out way. And I, it's not science fiction. This is this is what people have to do every day. You ask how do we judge this character after they did something wrong? First of all, I know the case you're talking about with regard to the brain tumor, and the follow up in that case suggests it was nothing like as as a simple description. Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. So that's thing one, and that often happens. Thing two is notice that in that case, what he did was molest, but not in a really super serious way. He molested his stepdaughter. Suppose it had been that he tortured the little girl across the street. Would you take the same view? Well, you take the tumor out. Now he's fine. I bet not. In any case, it's a complicated case and we don't really, really know how to deal with it hmm. and how to generalize from it. And the other case involving genes is this. There is no such thing as a gene for psychopathy. There is no such gene for any, any sort of temperamental behavior or temperamental feature. There are hundreds and hundreds of genes, as you know, that are interacting and making very small contributions and interacting in very complicated ways. If we thought there was just a single gene, well, then, you know, you might be able to do something or you might be able to feel compassion or whatever. But for nothing like antisocial behavior or totally selfish behavior, do we? know that there is a single gene or even two genes. It isn't like that. 
And so, you know, to be fair, it means that the thought experiment can't reach into my compassion one way or the other. My compassion doesn't know what to do with it. Hmm. Do you want to share quickly what was the complication? I mean, because this is such a well-known example. Well, about. there was some evidence of his long before he had any sort of a tumor of his having these kinds of interests and, and for continuing to have them afterwards, but not saying anything to the psychiatrist. So, I mean, why would he? He may have used it as an excuse for not being punished and the endocrinologists that, that I know about say that the location of the tumor was such that there was no real reason to think it had anything to do with sexual abuse. Maybe it did. There's so much we don't know yet about the brain. I would just be very, very cautious about drawing any kind of a conclusion. But I mean, at this point, you know, philosophers say, yeah, but suppose it was like that. That there was a tumor that you could take it and out and would grow back and that really did that thing. Then what? And then I, I, you know, again, I have to say, you know, the world is very complicated and, and you want me to give a simple answer and I'm not going to mm -hmm. give you a simple answer unless I know a way lot more about all of the relevant facts here. Many philosophers think that that's a failing on my part, but I think it's a failing on the part of philosophers that they want these silly ring-a-ding little thought experiments to be capable of drawing really deep and really profound implications about things. Okay, well, we have now dealt with one of the two <laughs> possible counters that I, I laid out, this being the we've learned too much, therefore morality cannot exist. But then there is the other one, which is that we haven't learned all that much. For example, in review for the Harper magazine, uh, critically, Hard writes, out of a vast tangle of neural connections might emerge a consciousness capable of producing Ulysses or a whole system of moral thought and action. Yet it seems uncontroversial to suggest that you can glean more about what it means to live and think by reading Ulysses than you ever could by shoving James Joyce inside an MRI machine, unquote. And I think this is a, a pretty common response to your work. For example, a similar comment would be from Olivia Goldhill writing for the New York Times. Church and engagement with neuroscience makes her an unusual figure in philosophy and her endeavor is certainly worthwhile. It would be more impressive, though, were she less eager to reject philosophical methods in her embrace of neuroscience. Our moral intuitions may well be grounded in biology, but Churchson fails to explore the most pressing questions of when or even if we should rely on such intuitions as a guide." Unquote. So this kind of, well, it's all very interesting if we are interested in the mechanism, people who want to learn how this thing happens in the body should absolutely read neuroscience. But we don't learn all that much from it in a more general sense of what it means to be moral, what is the right way to organize society, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What would be your response to such critics? There are many ways of learning about these things. And if, if you want to answer certain questions about your own life or about the nature of morality and you want to read Ulysses, by all means, do it. But, I mean, it's a bit like, it's a bit like, you know, we, at a certain point in, in human scientific history, we didn't really understand what life was. And... And there were many people who were vitalists in the sense they believed that a thing lives by virtue of being endowed with the living force. And that was the hard problem of vitalism. Well, turns out that, you know, once you know a lot about DNA and RNA and mitochondria and, and cell membranes, ribosomes and how proteins get made, that Bibleism doesn't look so cool. Now, if you, if you want to know about the nature of livingness itself, you know, by all means, go and, and read, I don't know, Tolstoy or somebody. And reading novels is great joy. And so I'm not 
for a moment suggesting that people shouldn't read novels. I am suggesting, though, that that our social nature has a very deep biological basis. And if you really want to be a philosopher and be a know-nothing philosopher, then, you know, I'm not interested in that. I'm just not interested. And that's not because I'm crass and materialistic and don't read novels and so forth. It's because I have certain kinds of questions to which I think we might be able to get answers if we explore the neurobiology of it. And I find that really exciting and fun. And if philosophers don't, then they should do something else. Yes, I, I, I guess in a way, the most obvious import of, of the biological work is that it demonstrates in a very undeniable way the depth of the matter when we talk about morality and sociality, that it is not just habits acquired like a fashion, which certainly is an idea that is floated around a lot. And I do appreciate y y your work amongst with many other biologically minded people on, on, on just how deep these things go. Yeah, I think they do go very, very deep and we've really only scratched the surface. I think this is a great moment to start ending the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Final question, based on your research, based on your worldview, what kind of animals are we? Well, we're quite lucky animals. We have these opposable thumbs. We have this larynx that allows us to make all kinds of sounds. We have this big fat cortex that allows us complexity that we call use of language, tool making. And we're pretty social. We're pretty darn social. And we do benefit from our social lives. Sometimes it gets complicated, but often our social lives are just great fun. Professor Patricia Churchland, thank you very much. This was the first episode of the On Humans podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider sharing it rating it and most importantly just subscribing to it this really helps immensely in the early stages of building the show in addition you will notice our future episodes as they come out including one with professor ruth feldman a neurobiologist with whom we will dig deeper into the biology of love biology of care and into her research demonstrating that love can literally synchronize our brains with each other. I hope that you enjoyed the show. Until next time, take care. <laughs>